So right away from verse one, you gain a bit of a, an understanding of the theme, judge not. <laughs> and this is something that we all need help with and, and encouraging because I think we can all tend to be very judgmental at times. In fact, as I, as I look out here, I can see that many of you are very judgmental. I can tell just by looking at you <laughs> right away. I just see a quick scan, I can see. And, and it's something that we can all struggle with and, and do oftentimes without even realizing that we're being judgmental. Well, the word of God has a lot to say about that for us today. And as we go through this section, we're gonna look at a few things here. We're gonna look at our responsibility to believers, verse one to two, our responsibility to ourselves, verse three to five, our responsibility then to unbelievers in verse six, our responsibility to the Lord, verses seven to 11, and then Last verse, verse 12, our responsibility to, to the world, all right? That's what we're gonna look at. Uh, go back to, to verse one again. We've, we've read through this, but let me read it again. Verses one and two, judge not that you be not judged. For what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Now, again, it's interesting because this is probably one of the most, one of the most quoted verses, I think you could, you could say, that people love to pass out. And usually it's from people that don't know anything else about the Bible, but this they know. And this becomes for them oftentimes like a, a force shield. Whenever a Christian comes to share things about Christ or the Lord, or about living rightly in him, they're like, oh, don't judge me. Say this force shield that goes up because oftentimes they don't wanna deal with that conviction or what they think maybe is condemnation and they wanna remain in their sin. Don't judge me, man. You're no better than me. And, and we use this verse so often and so much is kind of this, uh, again, defense mechanism for nobody to tell us what we should or should not do, right? Judge not, don't judge me. We throw this around so often. Now we're gonna see in our passage today that there are times not to judge and there are times where judgment is needed. This is not a wrong thing, but it's to be done in the right way. Now, what's interesting is that word, again, repeated oftentimes, judge not, that you be not judged. What judgment you judge, you will be judged. So this is a repetitive thing. It's the Greek word, krino. And that idea of krino means to judge with guilt or to be discriminatory, to judge as guilty. We get our word, critic from this word crino. And what happens is we oftentimes can be very critical as we look at others, as we're dealing with other people, what we think they should be doing or should not be doing. We become very critical. We become very judgmental. And we can be so critical and, and condemning. That word judgment right here is more so the word con, uh, condemning. And so again, that's what's oftentimes tied to this idea of judgment is that we can be very condemning and, and judge as guilty. But here's what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount is that this is not the way that citizens of the kingdom are to live their lives or how they're to act. And here's some problems that we have when we're quick to judge. First of all, we understand when we judge, we too are going to be judged. See, it says there, for with what judgment you judge, notice this, you will be judged yourself. You will be judged. So we understand that with whatever we're giving out, 
we know that's also coming back to us in a way. See, if we're walking around complaining, judging, scanning, critiquing others, well, we're gonna come across as very critical and harsh towards others. We become the unloving, holier-than-thou person that others love to judge back in return and say, oh, that's not very kind or loving. That's not very Christ-like. We become the judged oftentimes. And not only will others judge us, but there's also coming a time when believers themselves are gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. It says in Romans 14, verse 10 to 13, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts and each one's praise will come from God. So we understand that there's coming a day when we ourselves are gonna stand before the Lord and, and receive that kind of judgment to ourselves for how we've lived this life. Not judgment into whether or not we're saved and going into heaven, no. As believers, that judgment has already been answered on the cross at Calvary when Jesus died for us to forgive us of our sin. So if we put our faith in Jesus, that judgment is taken care of. But now, how we conduct our lives, how we live our lives is, is gonna be scanned, it's gonna be judged. And, and to be judged for rewards, as 2 Corinthians chapter five also alludes to us, standing at the beam of seat before God. But we understand that the Lord is, is sharing now, when we're dealing with one another, how we need to be careful that we're not imposing this kind of judgment and critique of condemnation upon others. Now, there, like, a, again, 1 Corinthians 5 reveals that in the house of the Lord, there are times where we do need to judge as he puts the sinning brother who doesn't want to deal with that sin, puts him out of fellowship in the church. There's times that there is judgment needed, but it's not unto condemnation. It's not in a critical kind of spirit or attitude. So be careful because the severity with which you condemn or are critical will be what you have coming back to you. That principle of reaping what you sow. See, I've learned that the more that I walk in grace, the more that I walk in grace with people, the more I'm likely to receive grace. Whereas the more that I walk in judgment towards others, the more often I'm gonna be judged in return. It reminds me of a very critical, negative barber who never had anything good to say. One day he had a, a businessman come in to get a haircut and business said, hey, I'm getting ready to go on a trip to, to Rome. And the barber said, oh man, why are you going over there? First of all, what airline are you traveling? What hotel are you staying at? The, the, the salesman told him all the details and the, the barber was quick to say, oh, that airline is awful. Uh, they don't serve good food, uncomfortable seats. The hotel you're staying at, oh, terrible service. I've heard the, 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 the things that they have there are just not clean. It's just a, a terrible time. And then what do you expect to do uh, while you're there in Rome? And the businessman said, well, I'm, I'm hoping to close a, a big deal. And then afterwards, I'm hoping to go see the Pope. Barber said, oh, don't count on that. The Pope never sees anybody. Well, the businessman went away, got on his, did his trip and he came back for his next haircut and saw the barber. Barber remembered and said, hey, how was your trip? And the salesman said, oh, it was wonderful. The airline was great. 
The hotel was accidental. The barber said, well, did you see the Pope? The salesman said, actually, matter of fact, I did get to see the Pope. I got to get right up and, and even bow down and kiss the ring of the Pope. And this barber was kind of surprised. He said, well, what did he have to say? The salesman said, well, he put his hands on my head and he said, my son, where did you get this awful haircut? <laughs> so we understand we're critical, negative judging. We're often going to get that back in return. Here's another reason why we need to be careful not to judge. And it's this, our judgment is off because we're off. Our judgment is off because we're often off. Look at the next verse that we see here in verse three. As we look at our responsibility to ourselves now, we've seen our responsibility to believers we're dealing with in, in the church with one another. Now look at our responsibility to ourselves here. It says in verse three, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So here's the problem with the human heart. We tend to think of ourselves so much better than we are. We love to elevate and promote and puff ourselves up. That's why we also love to critique and judge others. Because if we can judge others and make them less than, it helps to make us better than. And we do it oftentimes with real selfish motives or intent. But we have a very flawed view of ourselves. We tend to overlook sin in our lives, but be drawn to the sin in other people's lives like fly to a carcass. We're just drawn and we can spot those things so easy in other people and yet fail to see those very things at work in our own lives. So in other words, what place do we have to put other people in place when we are so out of place ourselves? So Jesus gives us very well known and kind of humorous example of what it's like when we are fault finding and critical of others. See, if we're trying to remove a little bit of sawdust from someone else's eye and yet failing to see that we've got a honking two by four hanging out of our eye, we're just walking around like clubbing people over the head with this thing and not even realizing it. And it ends up just being very hypocritical. We're not taking an honest look at ourselves. We're pretending, that's what a hypocrite was, a pretender. We're pretending like everything's perfect in our lives and all we're doing is just trying to spot all the inconsistencies or faults or sin in other people's lives. We're very good at pointing out those things in others, and yet for some reason, we have no problem overlooking them in our own lives. See, oftentimes, the things that we're critical in or of in others are the things that we're struggling with ourselves. Because it's a glaring thing. We know it internally that this is an issue and yet we kind of sugarcoat it or overlook it, but yet it draws us to see that so perfectly in other people. Notice something here. The, the little speck or piece of sawdust and the plank are, are really just the same material, just a different size, right? So in other words, the kinds of struggles that other people are dealing with are oftentimes the struggles that we're dealing with. And yet we don't see it that way because we tend to view ourselves with rose-colored glasses like everything's fine, we're on the right track, but yet we're, we're quick to critique and judge others for the same things. Case in point is with David, who goes and takes Bathsheba for himself 
and then puts Uriah on the front lines of battle to have him killed, taken out of the picture. It's like, let's just kind of, you know, brush over this sin. Let's, let's not deal with the issue. Let's deal with some of the things around it so that we can continue on in this life of sin. And then Nathan, the prophet, has to come to him and he says this, gives a great parable. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like it daughtered him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock with which he had much and instead took from that poor man's flock, the only little lamb that it had, stole it from him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against that man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man who has done this shall surely die. And yet Nathan in the parable form is painting the picture of exactly what David did, who had plenty and yet goes and takes another man's wife for himself. And David is quick to pronounce that man should die. What does Nathan do? David, you are that man. Ooh, David failed to realize until that was said to him, the sin of David was greatly convicted and thankfully repented and and was restored. But he was failing to see the sin in his own life and yet was quick to point out the sin in other people and the judgment that was needed in those cases and failed to see it for himself. He overlooked a plank in his own eye to deal harshly with the speck in another's eye how we need to be aware of these tendencies in our own lives, where we think better of ourselves and worse of others. And that should be flipped around. Understand that we're flawed and we're in need of self-examination here before we jump on the shortcomings of others, before we're quick to point the finger. Here's another reason why we shouldn't judge. And it's that we often don't know the whole story. We often don't know the whole story. John 7, 24 says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And what do we do oftentimes? We see something and we're quick to make a judgment call. And yet we don't even know what's really going on. I shared a video one time at church of, uh, and I, I couldn't find it, I wanted to play it this Sunday, but couldn't find it, but the videos of a, a man that, that gets home early and he's making dinner for his wife making a nice pasta, he's setting up flowers on the table and he's got this all candlelit, beautiful, he's cooking pasta in the kitchen, he's got a, a pot of you know, tomato sauce on the stove. And just as his wife is, is getting home, the cat jumps up, a white cat jumps up on the stove, knocks over the pot of tomato sauce all over the floor, the cat jumps down and as this man is cutting up some vegetables, he reaches down to grab the cat, lifts it up with tomato sauce dripping off it, knife in one hand, just as the wife walks into the apartment. Man, I'm sure there was a judgment call being made right there. But it wasn't the whole picture. It looked bad, but it's not really what was going on. And we're quick to make judgment calls based on just what we see in an instant before really understanding what's really going on, what's really happening, what's the heart of this person. Now, as I said earlier, there's times to judge and there's times not to judge. This is not, again, about not being discerning because later in Matthew 7, Jesus is going to tell us about uh, the Pharisees and that how there are people that we need to uh, judge and you'll know them by their fruit. 
So we need to be fruit inspectors. We're not judging to condemnation, but we're evaluating at times and, and, and having discernment. So understand the difference though. We're not called to be discriminating. We're called to be discerning. We're not called to be condemning. We're called to be compassionate and, and look to really get all the information before you're drawing conclusions, before you're coming to a point of, of judgmental uh, you know, views and attitudes here. Jesus takes us there in this next verse. Look at verse six. Verse six says, um, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. So he dealt with our responsibility to believers, our responsibility to ourselves, looking inwardly first. Now we're looking at our responsibility to unbelievers. So there's a, a difference that's coming now. Now verse six, when you read it, looks greatly kind of like out of place, out of context. Like what in the world is this throwing in, in here now? Do not give what is holy to the dogs. This seems to be really out there. What is this talking about? Now, what we need to do always is look at things in context of what Jesus is saying. And the idea here again, is that we need to be discerning and identify where people are at. There's an element of evaluating judgment, but it's unto having discernment, discerning where people are at. That's where we're going here. Now, interestingly, Jesus references dogs and swine here, okay? Now, dogs, for us, we hear that and we go, oh, Dogs are so lovely. We take them into our homes. We have them as pets. We carry them in little dog bags over to the dog spa, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. And I am judging those people that do that. I, just so you know. <laughs> just open honesty here. What is the matter with you? But that's the kind of day that we live in. It's the kind of era that we're, that we're in. Um, but in this day, when Jesus is speaking about this, dogs were like very much scavengers, dirty, mangy. You kind of kept them out of the home. You, you kicked them to the side. Like these were not animals that you wanted to be hanging out with, right? So dogs were viewed as kind of like the, the outcasts, the, the dirty, the, the unaccepted. And then swine, of course, pigs. We know in Jewish culture that, that pigs were seen as unclean. And so again, they had nothing to do with them. So Dogs and swine really represented the, the outcast and the despised in Jewish culture. But then Jesus says, do not give, do not give what is holy or cast your pearls to the dogs or the swine. So that's interesting here now. Now, what is being meant by what's holy and what are the pearls? Many have interpreted this as speaking of, you know, the good things of God, namely the gospel. And so people interpret this as, as saying, we need to be careful that we don't just throw out something so good like the gospel that people that don't want to receive it. And that's how it's oftentimes interpreted, which has merit to that. I'm not saying it, it can't be interpreted that way. It has merit to it. But here's the other thing. Nowhere in scripture do we see withhold the gospel because we don't know who's not gonna accept it until you give them the gospel. Are you with me? We have no idea, so we don't withhold the gospel. We don't walk, I don't walk around going, hmm, does that person look worthy of receiving the gospel? Maybe I'll share it with them. This person, nah, they might be a dog. I'm not gonna do it. I don't wanna, I don't wanna share that with them. I don't know. I wanna share the gospel with anybody and everybody that I can. And then we're told Jesus gives a, the, the, um, 
account in Luke 9, if when you go to somebody's house and you share and they don't wanna welcome you or the gospel, then just shake the dust off your feet and move on. Don't force it upon them. So that's a, a, an understandable interpretation. But I think it's important again that we don't just leave it at the gospel because Jesus says again, I, I, I've underlined that, do not give. It doesn't seem to fit with the gospel because we're called give out the gospel to everybody. Don't be discriminating in any of that. Give it to all people. And then if you see they don't want it, then so this is something that Jesus says, do not give. Do not give holy things or the pearls to those that are not part of God's family. Do not give. So then what are we talking about? I think it's important that we look back to the real theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, looking at things in context because Matthew chapter five, verse 20 really lays out, I, I would say it's the key verse. And, and many say it's kind of like the idea uh, behind the Sermon on the Mount. When he says there in Matthew 5, 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me just write that down, Matthew 5, 20. Kind of the, the, the key verse or many see is sort of the, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's dealing with righteousness because when Jesus says, your righteousness needs to go beyond that of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, what was going on? They were living their life on an outward scale. They were saying, I'm right with God because I do all these holy things in their minds. And yet inwardly, their hearts were far from God. It was all a show. They were the hypocrites Jesus alludes to. They were the pretenders because they put on an act of righteousness, but there was no internal righteousness. And so Jesus says, your righteousness needs to go beyond that and above that exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, meaning it's not gonna be done. You're not gonna be entering the kingdom of God because you're a good person. You do all these good things. No, it's a righteousness that needs to come to you from Jesus Christ. And it's gonna be an internal work by the new birth, by being born again, and by receiving the righteousness of Christ. That's the righteousness that brings people into the kingdom of God because it's not based on you, it's based on what Jesus did for you. Is everybody tracking with me? So, now when we talk about this verse, do not give what is holy to the dogs, the outcasts, or give your pearls to the swine. I believe more so you could be saying that this is speaking about giving those things that are a mark of the believer, righteousness in Christ, don't impose that on unbelievers. Because what we oftentimes do is we think, well, all right, I'm gonna help these people be more like God. I'm gonna help these people be accepted to God by what they do. And we try to impose this righteousness on other people. We try and change outward actions before allowing the gospel to take root and change a person's inward attitudes. We can tend to do that. And in so doing, we're kind of judging people, looking around at people going, oh, you're not very good. You need to be more, you need to be more holy. Or you need to do this, you need to do that. And yet we pass it on to unbelievers who are not walking with the Lord and have not been transformed by the Lord. And we try simply to impose on unbelievers what we're called to as believers. Don't in other words, don't judge them for their sinful actions because they don't know any better. They're still being led by the course of the world. They're still walking in their sin. They're blinded, you see. They haven't been born again and been given a new spirit, a new nature. And so what we do 
with people that are not open to the things of God, by trying to impose the righteousness, we're just trying to dress up the pig. We're just applying lipstick to the pig and yet all they wanna do is wallow in the mud. Doesn't change anything. And, and, and so much so that when you're trying to reform a person and get them to follow your convictions, you're just trying to get people an appearance of righteousness without any real power to live a righteous life. Please track with me. I hope you're, 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 you're catching this because we're so often trying to put the cart before the horse and get people to live right before allowing the gospel to enter in and transform them from inside out. And that can be a frustrating thing for people with no hope of change. If we're just trying to say, do better, live better. You shouldn't do that. You should do this. Don't do that. And all we end up doing is frustrating people with no hope to change. To the point where, like Jesus says, they're just gonna trample on the feet and perhaps turn and tear you in pieces. That's not the attitude of somebody that just doesn't receive the gospel. That's somebody that gets kind of burdened down by an imposing of righteousness when they don't have that spirit within them that's doing that work of transformation. Just dressing on the pig, we're putting on outward demands and not allowing the spirit to do that work. See, people need the gospel. It's through seeing what Jesus does that brings us hope, hope of change. It's through his death and resurrection and our faith being in him and in his saving grace that makes us righteous and it also gives us the power to live righteous lives now. That's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So we give the gospel to all people. We don't withhold it. We give it to all people. If they don't want it, you move on to somebody else but we certainly do not try to impose a righteousness on people without them being transformed through the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God under salvation and under transformation that gives them hope now to live this life that Jesus is painting for us in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what enables us to do that. So now, looking at this in context and seeing how we aren't to judge others and, and we're to work on our own obedience, growing in righteousness ourselves and not imposing that righteousness on others. Well, what kind of solutions are we left with? Well, Jesus gives us that here next in verse seven, where we look at our responsibility to the Lord now. Look at verse seven with me. It says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it'll be opened. Now these verses have often been used to kind of say, oh, this is wonderful that if I pray hard enough, if I keep seeking and knocking and just beating that door down, then God's just gonna have to answer my prayer. He's just gonna get tired of me. He just wants to kind of silence me. He's just gonna give me what I want. But as much as that verse may have been translated or, or not translated, but interpreted that way by others, is that what this is saying? And is that really, does that go in line with what we see elsewhere in scripture? Does the Bible teach this anywhere? Never are we shown in scripture that prayer is like a blank check for the believer that whatever we ask, God is now gonna do for you. We like to think that sometimes, don't we? But prayer is not a blank check by which the believer has, oh, I'm just gonna cash this in, Lord. I'm giving it to you, I'm praying, and now you gotta answer. Because actually that'd be very dangerous, wouldn't it? 
because we oftentimes don't know what we really need. But our Heavenly Father does. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount shows us that prayer that the Lord already knows what we need before we even ask. So why do we need to ask? Well, listen to that sermon from a few weeks ago. We don't have time to get into it right now, but it develops our relationship with Him. It puts our trust in Him. And that's why we need to trust our Heavenly Father. And here's what we do need to do. We need to pray according to His will. Not our will, but your will. And that's part of the, the Lord's prayer, the model prayer. It's not seeking our will, but God's will. 1 John 5.14 says this. 1 John 5.14 says, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But we oftentimes miss that part. If we ask anything according to his will. That's the prayer that the Lord answers. We can oftentimes struggle thinking, Lord, I prayed for this to happen. And you didn't do it. And we wrestle with that. But nowhere does the Bible say he's just going to automatically do whatever we ask. That's not the God we serve. That's the God that many people serve because they just want a God that's going to do what they want for themselves. And that's why so many people drift away because they have the wrong view of God. And rather than trusting him and seeking his will, they're all about their will. It's not about our will. It's about dying to ourselves and living for the Lord and trusting and believing that his will is always the better way. It may not seem like it at the time. Some of you have gone through real hardships and tragedies and wondered, where was God in that? Why didn't God change that? And you may not have the answer right here and now, but one day it'll all make sense. And one day you'll see that everything that God does is good and it was for the better. And how we need to trust him in that and depend upon him in that. And that's why we're called, listen, ask and seek and knock. And, and these are all written in the present active verb tense. In other words, this is to be an ongoing daily action where we're coming to the Lord and repeatedly saying, Lord, I need you. Now, <coughs> remember, just like the Sermon on the Mount is teaching, <coughs> excuse me, for us to live the life that Jesus is laying out in the Sermon on the Mount, we need help. In other words, if we're going to live a life that's growing in righteousness, walking in obedience, then we need to look to the Lord. We can't force it upon ourselves. We certainly don't force it upon others. We need the Lord to do that work. But this is why Jesus says, hey, keep coming to me. I'm the answer. I'm the one that's going to help you. Your righteousness doesn't come by you living better. Righteousness comes from me. And I'll do that work of transformation in your life. So keep leaning on me. Keep coming to me. Keep asking, seeking, and knocking. Not to beat down the door to get what you want, but to get what the Lord wants for you. To make you more like him. To be transformed in the image of Christ in your life. That's the kind of prayer he can answer. That's in alignment with his will. So keep on doing this daily. Asking the Lord to do that work of changing you, making you more like him. I need that every day. I want to live dependent on him. Every day I wake up, I'm like, Lord, if I don't have you at work in my life, I'm going to fail miserably. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to be critical. I'm going to be judging. I'm going to be lacking grace. I'm going to be lacking love. I need you, Lord, to fill me with all those components that I can reflect you in what I do today. We never get to a point where we're able to say, you know, God, it's all good. I think I got it from here on in. Check in with you in a few months, see how things are going, but I think I can handle this from now on. We're never going to get to that point. That's why it's written in this way, daily, keep on asking, keep on seeking, 
Keep on knocking on the door for the things that you need and what you need is him to fill you, lead you, use you for his glory. He's a good God who desires to bless us. And notice what we see here in verse nine. As we continue on here, or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? His earthly fathers were flawed. Oh, we're not perfect. We, we mess up. But here's the point being made. When your children ask for something, you're going to bless them. You love your children. If they ask for bread, you're not going to give them a stone. You're not going to flip it around. If they ask for fish, you're not going to give them a serpent. No, you want to protect them. You want them to be strong and healthy. You're going to do what you need for them. You love them. I remember uh, working at a, a daycare and I used to love to play jokes sometimes. And, and one day I, I had all this like hot, you know, like pepper seeds that I got from like one of those Boston pizza shakers that I used to booby chop some of my food there for others. But I, I took it to my daycare and we were making snack and I put some of those in the, in the crackers and they all ate these like crackers with like peanut butter and jam inside, like it's great. And some of them, you know, bit in these hot peppers, right? That were just, it's tame, it was fun, but they're like, oh, gross, that's awful. See, I would never do that with my kids. Now, I'm a good father. I'm a terrible daycare worker, but I'm a good father. I wouldn't do that for my kids. That's, that's the idea being made here, that, that you being earthy fathers, <laughs> don't, listen, some of you are judging me right now. You need to stop that. This needs to stop right here, okay? It was a long time ago, guys, a long time ago. But being good, earthly fathers, we don't do that to our kids. And so the point is being made from the lesser to the greater. If you as earthly fathers do that for your kids, how much more will your heavenly father, who is so much better than anything we do as earthly fathers, how much more is he going to love you and bless you and give those things that you need? Now, what's really good is that in Luke's gospel, in the same kind of uh, passage of text in Luke chapter 11, he adds something for us here. Luke chapter 11, I'll write this down for you. Luke 11, verse 13, he says this, regarding that, that same verse. Uh, if you then, it says, being evil, not to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, doesn't that fit in now with the context we're looking at with about being righteous, living righteous lives, not imposing on others, but needing the Holy Spirit to do that work. He needs to do it in us just as he needs to do it in other people, which we cannot judge or try to reform and do that work for them by imposing that righteousness. We need the Holy Spirit. And so now Luke's gospel in the same passage says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? Because that's what we truly need every day. It's a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to empower us, transform us, to live these lives for Christ and like Christ. Not being judgmental, not critiquing, criticizing, but walking in love and grace. That doesn't come naturally for me. That comes through the Holy Spirit. And daily, be asking the Holy Spirit to fill you and strengthen you and empower you to live out this life. Lastly, Let's look at our responsibility to the world. Verse 12. It says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
Here now is what's known as the golden rule. And many have seen this as kind of being sort of the, the summary verse of this chapter and some even of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Again, living the right kind of life. Now, this was a well-known principle already in play ahead of this time. The well-known rabbi, Hillel, shared this principle before this was even said. Only he did so in the negative. And he said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. So in other words, he takes it from a negative point, what you see is wrong and hateful. Don't do to others. But Jesus now turns the principle around and raises it to a higher, more proactive kind of level. He goes beyond passive restraint to now walking in active, proactive benevolence. Christianity is not simply a matter of absence from sin. It is a matter of positive goodness. So Jesus says here, whatever you want men to do to you, do, and that's the emphasis there, do also to them. Don't wait for them to do good to you. You as a believer in Christ should live a different life to where you are actively doing good. And again, let's be, sh- be careful here. It's not doing good to be saved or to earn our way into the kingdom of God to heaven. It's not doing good for those reasons. It's doing good because the ultimate good has been already done for you. And that's Jesus Christ who came into this world to die on a cross, to forgive you your sin and pay the penalty for your sin. He died and rose again so that you could have the promise of eternal life. He's done the ultimate good. And our goodness now doesn't flow out of ourselves trying to earn our way. It flows out of what Jesus has already done for us. And it's the life now that's to be operating in active goodness now. See, when you have people seeking the best for others, can you imagine how that would transform society? Can you imagine how, how incredible this place would be if everybody's out there just seeking to do good for others? And you see glimpses of that, and you just go, ah, oh, just restores my faith in humanity. Ultimately, it's not faith in humanity, it's, it's faith in God, and it's, it's the gospel that's gonna transform humanity ultimately. But man, if we can start as citizens of the kingdom, to display a different way by doing good, serving and blessing others. It's a wonderful way to live life and it's a blessing not only to you, but to many around you. Well, here's what we've seen in our passage as we wrap things up here. Let me summarize again. We've seen our responsibility to believers and that is don't judge. Fellow Christians, don't be condemning, critical, don't judge. There's a right kind of judgment. We'll look at that another time, but be careful not to be discriminatory, critical. Secondly, our responsibility to ourselves. Recognize your own faults before pointing out everyone else's. Before you're ready to jump on somebody, just pause and do a self-examination. Lord, are these things that I am struggling with and I need to deal with too? Thirdly, our responsibility to unbelievers. Use discernment and don't force righteous living on those that haven't yet been changed by the gospel, that are not yet in Christ. Don't try to cause them to live Christ-like when they don't even know Christ. Number four, our responsibility to the Lord. Pray and seek him for wisdom and help in these matters. He's a good heavenly father who gives good things to his children when they ask. And then our responsibility to the world. Be proactive in living out this practical righteousness before others. Christianity is a life of doing good. Not doing good to be saved, but doing good because we are saved. 
and we have the example of a good savior. So let him be evident and seen in how you live your life, all right?